You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, for uh, this gathering of your people, Lord, um, that even here and now we would worship you in spirit and truth and help us to, to know you and love you more dearly and to have a confidence in our faith that uh, we can't help but to share because we know it to be true. Lord, guide us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, um, it, uh, we'll about five minutes less time than I thought. That should be okay. I'll just carry over next time because the lesson today and, and next week are kind of two parts really about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in order to get to the proper idea of the resurrection, I want to talk about scripture first. If we need more chairs, we can grab some from uh, Klingman if anybody, want, anybody wants to be in charge of that. There's a couple few on this side. Feel free to, to go across. I can go all the way back here if we want to put like a row in the splash zone. Um, so uh, I'm going to pass around again this clipboard. Uh, if, if you were here last time, uh, no need to re-sign your name if you did. But this is, uh, for those of you who might be interested in future opportunities to participate in training for evangelism in particular, this class is kind of a stab in that direction. We might have... Um, programs that are not on Sunday morning, uh, or if I do something like this, and again, I'll, I'll email you. So only if you're interested. If if you're just here because uh, you don't know where else to go and you don't really care about this stuff, no sweat if you don't sign your name, okay? Um, so uh, I like that. That's good. Um, so uh, last time, it was a topic that I'm really interested in. I know was, I was really excited because I... Um, I'm really interested in the demographic shifts because it's uh, it, it's just an interesting phenomenon. It's depressing at one level, um, and I forgot to record, so if you missed last lesson, you can't listen to it. But if you're really interested, I can send you a PDF of the uh, document I handed out, basically just saying that the United States is trending towards um, <clears throat> uh, increasingly not being a culturally Christian place, especially here uh, in the South, including here in the South, not especially not especially, including, it's harder for us to see. Uh, I think we're one or two generations, if things keep going in the trend, we're in a lag phase where it's hard to tell that people are um, being sort of um, unchristianized, I guess is a way to, to put it, uh, because it's in our cultural bloodstream. Um, it, it, it's just sort of out there in the ether of the South in a lot of places, though not all. You know, if you go to Crestwood Shopping Center where I live, I mean, I feel like I might as well be in um, Portland, Oregon, or, you know, I mean, it's not that bad, but uh, <laughs> it's similar, you know, in terms of uh, culture. Uh, so it's pockets, you know, you might be, um, <clears throat> if you live like on the other side of 459 in Shelby County or something, you might think what I'm saying is crazy, but uh, in downtown uh, or, uh, you know, Southside, uh, Crestwood, um, places in Montgomery, uh, even in rural South, as if you read the book Hillbilly Elegy uh, or heard about it, he really paints a picture as um, even people who pay lip service to Christianity don't even go to church. They don't really uh, pray or read the Bible or live like Christians, even though they might call themselves Christians. 
I think if things keep going the way they are, that'll change in a generation or two, meaning like 10 to 20 years. Uh, and so that raises a need for apologetics, which is why I'm doing uh, this class. Um, and this goes this week, next week, and the week after, by the way, we, we'll keep going. Last time I brought in uh, some pre preliminary thoughts, some sort of like basic thoughts on evangelism if you've uh, or apologetics. If you've come to any of my other lessons, I basically repeat these thoughts. And so last night in a fury, I typed up this handout for you, apologetics as evangelism, some basic rules of engagement. And because I typed it up in a fury, I noticed there are seven typos. I apologize. <laughs> I'll revise it and uh, bring it in again with fewer typos each week. So if you miss, uh, if you if someone misses next week, they'll get it. Uh, this week they'll get it next week um, because I think that these things are are helpful to understand always in the background. And just going through this, uh, I define apologetics, what that means, um, as a defense of the faith. And you might think of in legal terms as if. Uh, uh, Christianity were in the dock and you're the def defending lawyer. You know, that's kind of basically what it is. Um, uh, and uh, often people think of apologetics and evangelism as two different categories. I do not. I see it as the sort of intellectual side of evangelism. Arguments and evidence are not going to necessarily lead someone to faith. The Holy Spirit does. The, the Holy Spirit works through all means, including if somebody raises an issue... We ought to respectfully, and by the way, that's the, the verse from First Peter, respectfully and gently uh, uh, provide an answer uh, when they raise things about how can any sane person believe in a God? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, a lot of people do. A lot of philosophers do. Or doesn't science oppose uh, religion? No, it doesn't. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of scientists who have become faithful as they look more and more at things like uh, you know, the infinitesimally small aspects of, of biology or into the cosmos in particular. Um, so that's apologetics is even if we give a, a very brief answer to provide a thoughtful response and not just sort of um, uh, sort of shove our Bible verses down their throat. And increasingly that doesn't work. It, it didn't work for me when I was younger when people would try to sort of throw decontextualized Bible verses at me, um, I, I didn't really know what they were talking about. It was like, speak, you might as well have been speaking Swahili, um, as far as I was concerned. Uh, and that was the other thing I mentioned, First Peter, where he says, we ought to do it with gentleness and respect, and not, um, even though it might seem like a debate, we ought to not be uh, fighting, because ultimately we're trying <laughs> to be diplomats for our king, you know, and to to draw people into that kingdom. And the church has done a, a disservice often for the sake of evangelism by, by being um, obtuse and, and, and rude or offending people and not sort of living out the hope that we have. And the other main thing is to focus, focus, focus on... This is one area where um, I, what I'm trying to say differs from what I think a lot of apologists say is to focus on the resurrection, to start with the resurrection, to come back to the resurrection. So many apologists get lost in the details of that stuff I was telling you about, the cosmos, which is exciting, or biology, or the case for theism, and then you just create a, a deist. They've gone from atheism to deism but uh, they're not becoming followers of, of Christ, and you can get lost in the weeds of that stuff. And it's fine to, 
to do some of that work, but to constantly come back to the resurrection because it is the thing that confirms the faith that we have, that Jesus Christ bodily came back from the dead, confirms who he said he was, which is the Son of God, and what he did, which was to redeem us of our, our sins. Um, and so, so coming back to that, that that's the ground. If we're losing any sort of conversation, let's lose the conversation and the sort of the battlefield of the gospel um, rather than uh, the case for theism or, you know, the moral argument for God. If you know what any of these things mean, the Kalam argument, the ontological argument, don't lose the conversation there because Muslims believe in the Kalam argument. You know what I mean? They created it, <laughs> for goodness sake. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. But some of you maybe have heard about it. Um, who is it? William Lane Craig? Is he the one? He's all about the Kalam argument. He's made a whole career around that and other things too. And it's good to know to have for us, which is the other thing I want to say is that apologetics is super helpful for discipleship because our faith has so much to go on historically, uh, philosophically, scientifically, and otherwise. Um, <clears throat> We're on thin ice if our faith strictly remains on an emotional and sort of, as people say, heart level. I, I believe in that. Conversion happens at the heart. But if, if, if all of our faith rests there, we're on thin ice when uh, we're 17 or 18 and we go to college and our 60-something um, religion 101 professor who has a PhD and three master's degrees and is articulate challenges our faith. You see what I'm saying? Because he's thought about this his whole career, which is another thing. We ought to teach children this stuff. Okay, so that's all the preliminaries there. I'll, I'll say the same thing every single time because I think we need to hear it. So today is the historical uh, realm of apologetics. Um, and really today, uh, the reason why I'm giving this lesson and the one next week is because they're both about the resurrection, as I said, the central place that we want to go. So I wanted to make that the center of this class. Uh, it's helpful if we're going to talk about the resurrection. And by the way, everything that's in here, please don't see this as a formula that you need to walk someone through. This is for you, okay? This stuff is for you, and I've typed it up for you to have reference because it's, it's too much probably to take in here, to take with you. Um, which is another thing in my sort of primer handout there. One of the best things you can do is um, <clears throat> build up a sort of, uh, um, even if it's not a physical library, a sort of a mental um, database of helpful resources. And this might be one, you know, the handouts that I'm giving you. And they have lists of books and different categories that you might be interested in. Even if you don't read it, <clears throat> I mean, I, I normally wouldn't say this, but here I will. Even if you don't read a book, if I you know, give you a book that, uh, in, in the uh, bibliography on the historical case for the Gospels, trust that I'm seeking out trustful sources. I haven't even read every single page of a lot of these books, but I've skimmed them and I've got them from other scholars, uh, trustworthy sources. If someone's questioning that, you can look at this and say, there are seven books that you might consider reading. I'd be happy to read them with you, that kind of thing, okay? You don't need to commit all this to memory. But here's the thing about the Gospels. Um, Christianity is uniquely historical. There are other religious faiths that are or claim to be historical, namely, uh, well, I will see Judaism as, uh, Christianity is an extension of the history of Judaism, so we believe in that history. Great, but we see it as being fulfilled in Christ, so there's a big difference there. 
but the other two big historical faith systems are, are Islam and Mormonism. Um, but the uh, case apologetically for those two faiths, I'll just say this now, I won't provide you the details, but you can look this up. If you're interested in Islam and what I'm saying, there's a great biography by this guy named Nabil Qureshi, who tragically died last year, young, who came to Christian faith from Islam, and he talks about how apologetics, the apologetics of Islam didn't hold water to the apologetics of Christianity, and that's why he became a Christian. Or Mormonism, I mean, they go over, they, they do have apologists, but they, they do acrobatics that are strange to provide a historical case for the Book of Mormon. Uh, but when it comes to Christianity, the historical case is amazing. I don't know how else to put it. It's crazy. It's actually better than other things in antiquity that we take for granted, like uh, Plato and Aristotle, uh, Homer. Uh, there's a chart in here that I'll look at later that we don't question at all. Uh, but the thing is, um, we uh, have historical evidence, and we're never with anything in this realm going to achieve certainty. The only place you're really going to kind of get certainty in life is like in some realms of mathematics. But like, I don't have certainty when I get on an airplane and fly to Europe that I'm going to land safely on the other side. But I make a sort of plausibility argument in my mind based on statistics and my experience flying airplanes that I am going to make it on the other side. It's actually in that realm of reasoning that we ought to think about Christianity. Because if Christianity were in the realm of reasoning like mathematics, it would be restricted to decontextualized propositions. There is no saving person in that, okay? There just isn't. It's just a... It's just a uh, ideas out in the air, if it were in the realm of mathematics. Uh, but uh, we have plausibility, and we're trying to get the most plausible case. It's never 100% certain. I don't think there's anything 100% certain beyond 100 and something years ago, because the oldest person is like 120 years old, right? So who, how do we even know the universe existed before that? I don't know, because of plausibility. <laughs> because of plausibility, okay? It's the same thing that we're after here, and the way historians do this in all fields, we ought to do with Christianity. We ought not to use uh, special reasoning to arrive at the historical case for Christianity. There are some Christian thinkers who've tried to do that, and I think that was a mistake. Um, but there are sources that, here's the types of historical sources that historians uh, tend to use are the primary sources, secondary, and tertiary. First, second, and third. The primary is, and you can think the place where you, the places where you're most familiar with this in your life, half of you are lawyers in the courtroom. This is done there, right? Am I right? This is basically how things are done. Uh, or um, if you're a parent um, and the, the, the siblings are fighting and, and they, they, they reconstruct the history of what happened and come to you with the case, right? And you try to figure out what actually happened because you weren't there. Um, or anything else like that. You get in a, a sort of fender bender. That's what the insurance adjusters are doing. They're using the, the primary, hopefully, uh, evidence to discern what may have actually happened, right? So the primary evidence is from people who were there at the event. They were eyewitnesses who experienced it and are retelling it. The secondary forms of evidence are as like if you go talk to the insurance adjuster about the accident, right? He wasn't there, but he talked to the primary sources. Um, and tertiary uh, evidence is not what you want to base history on alone because it's usually a sort of synthesis. Think of, you know, 
textbooks or something, right? They're synthesizing um, <clears throat> material from primary and secondary sources. But the secondary and tertiary sources can be used to sort of back up and corroborate. The, 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 the main deal is with the primary. You want that. And so what I'm going to say is that the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the primary sources for the life of Jesus Christ that we have. That they're by people who either were uh, Jesus' own disciples or were disciples of like one generation removed, like uh, Mark, a disciple of Peter. And therefore, actually a primary source document because what Mark did was he collected that data from Peter. And Luke, who wasn't there but was a historian and had a sort of, as he's referred to elsewhere, a physician, so had a very analytical mind, he collected at the very top of that handout is a quote from him. Let's just read that. Okay, this is how it begins. This is apologetics in the stinking Bible, where at the very beginning of Luke, he says, uh, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely, for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Um, so he collected the data from the primary sources, so therefore is a primary source document as well. Um, uh, uh, so, that you, so when talking, here, here's the thing, okay? Uh, I think I say it here, yeah. Um, when talking to someone about this stuff, uh, we have got to use the Gospels. Now, some people, and I used to think this way when I was a non-believer, um, but nobody was able to explain it to me well enough, um, think that that's just not fair because you're using um, a source that they don't see as authoritative, um, that it's biased. But, but we just have no other way about it. The, these are the primary sources. We ought to direct them to that and talk to them about, about it like that. that th th this is the historical material that describes the life of Christ. Let's engage with that uh, and, see, and see what the, the sort of case looks like, if, if they're willing, um, rather than pointing to secondary and tertiary sources because that's uh, not going to be as strong. So to think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as primary sources and try to talk to people like that. Like, let's just shelve the idea that this is Holy Scripture. Will you accept that, um, like other documents in antiquity, that these were the, um, the primary sources that told the um, historically the life of Jesus Christ and what happened? Okay, let's look at that. That's starting on page two. There are a few ways to look at these documents. Um, one is uh, what's called the bibliographic evidence. And um, this is helpful. And these are, you don't have to talk to people like this. Like, well, there's a bibliographic case or whatever, right? But this is helpful for you to know because it, so people say things like Dan Brown from the Da Vinci Code, right? Have you read that or heard about it or seen the movie? Here's a quote at the top. And this basically is kind of like what a lot of people say. This is from the Da Vinci Code. The Bible did not arrive by facts from heaven. The Bible is the product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically into, uh, from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. 
that is a really dangerous myth that's been spread uh, because it's just not true. At least when it comes to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, quite the opposite is true if we look at this. So in spite of what skeptics like Brown continue to perpetuate, there are actually a large number of early copies of the Gospels. There's a very low rate of discrepancy between these copies beyond simple typographical mistakes. There are some others but most of the thousands of discrepancies people like to point out tend to be misstrokes of the pen, kind of, like the typos that I had in the handout, right? <laughs> um, it's a common human phenomenon, e even then. Most scholars agree that the time span between the events, and this, by the way, means uh, across the ideological spectrum. Most scholars agree that the Gospels uh, were written, the, the primary source documents, I should say, about 30 to 50 years after the times of the events, um, the earliest available copy, which is actually just a fragment of John's Gospel, there are some more complete ones that are, aren't as early, but the earliest piece of a Gospel we have is uh, from about 100 years after the events. And the uh, very quick, widespread uh, distribution of the earliest documents would make falsifiability virtually impossible. In other words, some people might say that... Um, uh, the the uh, as Dan Brown basically says here that these documents have been doctored over time. Well, then how do you explain the thousands of versions of these that were copied and spread geographically? You would have to have some crazy conspiracy where people went around and collected every single copy around the Near East and Mediterranean basin and to to reprint them and then distribute them again. It's just that's what I'm talking about in terms of rationality. That's an irrational thing to say. Um, and so with all that in mind, just look at this chart. Uh, some of these documents I don't even know, but they're from antiquity. Some of them you recognize. Um, the comparison between the date the document was written, the earliest copy that we have available in some archive somewhere, that time span between the date written and the earliest copy, and the number of copies that we have available from those early documents. The bottom line is that the New Testament uh, wins in the, all three categories. Uh, the time span, uh, fewer than 100 years compared to over 1,000 or at least 1,000 in all the others, and the number of copies, uh, hundreds, uh, sometimes thousands more copies. Uh, copies, or always a th thousands more copies than all the other things that we take for, for granted, like you know Homer's Odyssey and Iliad and other writings, um, Aristotle, Plato, Testus, uh, Historian. Um, so, I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that could be interesting to show someone, maybe, if they're, if they're uh, really interested, but at least for you to know, so that when someone says something like Dan Brown, or you read the Da Vinci Code and read that, you can say, well, wait a minute, that's just not true. So that's the bibliographic evidence. Let's consider the internal evidence of the documents themselves. Um, and there's more, uh, you know, I'm limited on time. There's more we could say. But here are uh, a few highlights of, of things that we could do uh, when uh, asking whether or not uh, these uh, documents disqualify themselves. Um, did the authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have the opportunity to get the history right? Well, consider this. Matthew was a tax collector, and therefore he was probably a professional fraud inspector. 
He was also one of Jesus' 12 disciples and therefore a primary witness to the events. Mark was a disciple of Peter, who was one of Jesus' inner circle and therefore a primary witness to the events. Luke systematically checked everything out as a historian, giving primary source eyewitnesses opportunities to refute the history. You following what I'm saying there? These were distributed within 30 to 50 years, so people were still alive who were there. Giving people, including, like, say, Jesus' own family, mother, brothers, and uh, other disciples, opportunity to refute the claims, and we don't have record of that. Uh, Even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there are still 500 people alive if you want to go ask them, right? Uh, And then John, uh, also one of Jesus' inner circle and also therefore a primary witness to the events. What about motive? Did the authors have the motivation to get the history right? Some will say that they did this for selfish gain. Well, that's baloney. They all died as martyrs. Or at least we, uh, the tradition tells us that these guys all died as martyrs, and they had nothing to gain by it socially. They had everything to lose. <laughs> if they wanted some sort of power grab, this is not the way to go about it, right? I mean, because uh, the story that they were telling made them unpopular uh, with those in power, including, uh, for some of them, their own uh, religious leaders. Uh, and there's more that we can say in terms of the internal evidence, but hopefully that's enough to see that these guys had the sort of opportunity and motivation uh, to get the story right. Um, oh, and then the differences. People will point out that there are the stories are not uniform. Some of the uh, details don't seem to be quite right. But again, as I said, half of you are lawyers. When have you ever had a, if you're a litigator, had four uh, witnesses to the actual event where they told the exact same story. And if they did, what would you expect? What would the jury or judge expect? Somebody's cooking the books, right? I mean, this ain't right. That's why police, when they arrest a couple people for the same crime, they will interrogate them separately, right? To see uh, what the story is. And if they are to the T saying the same dang thing, then somebody's lying. They're both lying. They've... They've, uh, they've decided to, um, to come up with the same story. So actually, what I'm saying is the fact that they, the Gospels are very similar but not exactly the same uh, bodes well for saying there's some accuracy here. Whereas again, like I said, with Islam and Mormonism, there's one version. There, there, there's one version. Um, there, there are not four like this. But we're making a case for Christianity, and it's actually helpful. What about external evidence? Are there uh, competent uh, secondary and tertiary sources that match up with the primary? Yes. Uh, I won't read all these, but you can at home where you see people within a century of the events refer uh, to the events, um, uh, including uh, uh, sources that would have been hostile, like Jewish and Roman sources. Josephus, Tacitus, Suetonius, and then uh, Pliny the Younger, I'm leaving out his, he was having a conversation with the, the Roman emperor and the Roman emperor wrote back to him about it. They had a sort of dialogue. And uh, Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch who are Christian sources. But when you consider someone like Ignatius, who's less than 100 years after the events, one of the early church fathers, they didn't have Bible verse citations like we do now, so he doesn't do that. But you can tell by reading his letters, he wrote epistles to churches. 
that he's citing, weaving into his own language, biblical texts, including material from the Gospels, that lines up with what we have less than 100 years later, okay? Um, which helps to, to prove the case that um, these were spread, widespread early on uh, and not doctored the way that Dan Brown says. Uh, and then there's archaeological evidence that helps also to sort of confirm things, like when you look at um, the way that Roman trials were conducted, it very uh, lines up with the way that um, Jesus was tried for uh, his execution. And then there are some resources there listed if uh, you're interested in studying more about these things. Those are some highlights. It's still a lot, I know. Um, there's more, like I said, that we can say, but at least this gives you a, a, a taste of um, what we're resting in. And um, if people say something that contradicts uh, the material here, you can say, well, hold on a minute. I, I don't think that's true. As a matter of fact, we can look at this uh, together. Um, what do you think about that? Um, that uh, actually when you look at the historical case, the Gospels are uh, more reliable than uh, some of these things that you've been taking for granted. You know, that's the kind of way that you could have the conversation. And then try to get them back to the resurrection, which is what we'll talk about next time. Because these are the documents that record, and it's the, the climax of each of these documents, the resurrection. Um, so the reason why we're looking at this now is are the documents that record the events of the resurrection reliable? Reliability is not going to bring someone to faith, though it's helpful these days when people question the reliability. Any um, thoughts about any of this stuff, points of clarification, et cetera? Yeah. Okay, so for someone who's not as much of a scholar, which would be me, but talking to someone who doesn't have a belief, who maybe, you know, the last time they read Homer or any of this was in high school English, how do you bring some of these ideas into kind of layman's terms of saying, yeah. does that make sense? Absolutely. I don't want you to commit these things to memory as a formula to have discussions with people right. about. This is for you to be acquainted with. Um, if someone is not raising questions in this realm, then don't talk to them about it. It will be a distraction. Are you catching what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That the apologetic topics that I bring in are for us to have a response. Other than the gospel itself, which we'll talk about next time, I think we ought to begin with that. I'm a proponent of, first of all, if I have any method, it would be this, okay? And this works now in the 21st century with a lot of people. <clears throat> it may not have been the way that we should do things 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Billy Graham's approach is different than mine, okay? But I'm operating in 2000, what year is it, 18, you know? Um, to ask someone what they believe, first of all. Uh, and, and, and you'll find that most people who are skeptical or object to Christianity or have some other belief uh, have a pretty shallow understanding of what they purport to believe. Uh, and they might exhaust the articulation of their belief in as little as 15 seconds sometimes. But, but they're living by sort of bumper sticker cliches that are powerful or sort of um, hashtag kind of beliefs. And then if it's 15 seconds, 15 minutes, or 15 days worth of listening to them say <clears throat> what you believe, then say, can I explain to you what I believe? 
and you don't have to say tons, right? And then they might have some objections that they raise to that. And some of their objections might seem like an absolute non sequitur. As the example I gave you last week was, let me talk to you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, explain it to you in three minutes or fewer, and then somebody says, what about all the Catholic priests who are pedophiles? I don't understand how that adds up, but, but you might want to respond to that. You know, uh, They're more likely to say the Dan Brown thing as a response to talking about the resurrection. Um, or maybe more likely they're going to question miracles, which we'll talk a little bit about next time. So, so the formula, therefore, is to listen, say what you believe, and then respond to the specific objections that they raise. Rather than most people who engage in apologetics want to build this case from truth to theism to Christianity, and that can take a lifetime to, to go through that. And, and most of us, including me, don't feel equipped to kind of go through all that, and I don't think it's efficient. Is that helpful? It does. Okay, yeah. I, one thing I really particularly liked was you saying not getting caught up in the scientific details, per se, because yeah. I feel like when I've talked to people before, things like Noah's Ark is a quick way, the flood, to yeah. create the entire validity <clears throat> of the Bible. All of a sudden, I, I'm then stuck in a debate that other than watching the Discovery Channel and those like, dun, 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 did the flood yeah. really happen? I don't really know. No more than what I read in the Bible. You know, and I don't, yep. how do you kind of jump around that without sounding ignorant or that you are really being I would, so if somebody, here's an example. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the flood next week, actually, because it's related to the resurrection. Believe it or not, <laughs> the resurrection proves that the flood happened. I believe, okay, because... What I'll talk about next time is if Jesus rose from the dead, he was God, and if he's God, then why did he never disparage the Old Testament? As a matter of fact, he refers to it as if it happened, and he actually refers to the three most bizarre things for people then and now, the historicity of Adam and Eve, the flood, and jo Jonah, and relates those things to his own life. So he's God, he says it's accurate, I'm going to believe him over any... Uh, thoughtful, any thoughtful PhD. Um, I might, um, you know, respect them, but they're not God. You see what I'm saying? And so I, what else, I won't even go there. If someone raised a flood, I would say, let me talk to you about something even crazier to believe. That God became a man and walked around earth and then died. Oh, he was born of a virgin, walked around <laughs> on earth, and then he died an actual death, and then he came back to life. That's even harder for someone to believe, I think, than the flood. So again, if we go back to the resurrection, um, if I can believe that, man, I can believe anything. The the sun stopping and and uh, Joshua for a little while, the creation of the universe. I mean, there there are harder things to believe than Noah's flood. So what I would say is, try to get back to the the resurrection and actually up the ante. You find pain and suffering to be an obstacle to belief? Well, let me talk to you about pain and suffering. Uh, our God took on human flesh and, uh, and took on the pain and suffering of the world. You see what I'm saying? Um, to, to not get distracted by the, the stereotypical stuff, though sometimes we can have a good response, but to bring it back to the resurrection and, 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 and do better at what they're saying in terms of raising the stakes 
of uh, of the stuff that they're bringing out. There was another hand over there. Yeah. Um, my experience has been that dealing with people who are charged um, might agree with Dan Brown in not talking about the Gospels, but for example, in Timothy, where he says all scripture is God-breathed, and then relate that to, say, Paul's writing. Right. Are we going to talk about that later? Yes. Okay. Next week. But this is why we had to do this lesson to get to next week. But I will. Again, it's the same thing I just said. If Jesus rose from the dead, he claimed to be God, and he did. I mean, he never said, I am God. He didn't talk that way. He said a lot of other things, like, I and the Father are one. You look to me, you see the Father. The Father sent me from heaven. He's saying he's God. And uh, he dies and comes back to life, as he said he would, confirms the fact that he's God. And then uh, that just sort of... It seals the deal on the rest of Scripture, both the old and the new, because his own disciples are the ones who wrote the rest of the New Testament. And then Peter himself calls Paul's writings Scripture. Uh, and uh, so Peter, who is one of the two closest followers of God incarnate, who died and rose again, um, says that what Paul said in First Timothy was correct. Um, and so that's why I think it's important to go back to the resurrection for the people we're talking to and for us, for our own sake. Um, believe what God says and not what the Discovery Channel says, even though it can be really uh, winsome and persuasive. We're out of time. Come back next week. We'll talk about the heart of the matter, which is the resurrection. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.